My name is Neil Canavan, Scientific Advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of NameTag, a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the healthcare sector forward. Today, I am speaking with Alexander Zapizoshne. He is the CEO of Clario Vision. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and that was a beautiful pronunciation. <laughs> I got through it, and I'm not going to try again. So, uh, Alex, first things first. Uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Clario, let's start with the elevator pitch. So 60 seconds or less, how long have you guys been in business? Where are you headquartered? And give me an idea of what you do there. Sure. The company started in 2014. We are based in Rochester, New York, and we're in a spin-out from the University of Rochester and uh, its various uh, laser research efforts. And we have a platform, uh, and we can get into the details of what the platform is, uh, but it's a platform that's applicable in multiple areas of vision care. One is around building more advanced contact lenses. The second one is a type of LASIK surgery, but really a non-invasive LASIK surgery. And mm -hmm. the third application is in something called the intraocular space, or, or IOLs, which are implanted after cataract surgery. Okay. Now, in uh, keeping with the mission of NameTag, uh, which is introduced listeners to the senior management, in this case, you, uh, we're going to start with all the way at the beginning with your education. You have a bachelor's in applied economics from Cornell. This is circa 1993. Following that, you got your JD at American University. And then you went into uh, a very interesting job, which is the assistant DA in Bronx County. This is in 1997, and this went on for three years. So before we get into the business and the science, I just need to know, um, what do lawyer shows get wrong that you learned in the Bronx? Well, I mean, they are not, uh, what they get wrong, I suppose, is that not everything is uh, all fun and games and being able to do things uh, in the middle of trials. Uh, but I have to tell you, I love, uh, I, I love, cop shows. I love uh, shows about uh, lawyers and prosecutors. So that's probably my, my, my biggest continued connection to the world of, uh, of prosecutions. Okay. So from there, in 2000, you went on to become a general counsel at a company named Linnell Systems. Uh, this is specialized in so-called high-end software. And this company was eventually acquired by United Technologies. And you stayed on board again as general counsel for another year there. Um, anything you want to tell me about that experience? Uh, or is it is your first foray into this sort of technology? Well, it was really my first foray into even the kind of the private sector. Uh, and it's really where I figured out that, uh, that, that I actually wanted to do something entrepreneurial and liked technology, liked uh, the idea of uh, innovation. Uh, I mean, that particular opportunity was was great for me because I, I had come along uh, into that opportunity when it was still a relatively small company. I'd had a strong pre-existing relationship with the two co-founders. And in fact, they definitely did not take me into that business because I had the uh, kind of the content expertise or, or the business expertise, but they really had a uh, good uh, working relationship with me and they, and they had a lot of trust in me. And so they allowed me to, to come in and become part of the executive management team. And uh, for the five years until we sold to United Technologies, uh, it was, uh, I mean, to me, that was the best sort of education, really seeing a startup go from being quite small to mm -hmm. having the 
the success to sell for an, an all-cash deal uh, for $440 million to United Technologies. And then, of course, even after the sale, I mean, there were, of course, other things that, uh, that, that I then got to do, including the post-merger integration, uh, and then working at a larger company and, and figuring out that while there are all sorts of positives to a big company, that that probably was not the best platform for me personally to be able to achieve the things that I, that I wanted to achieve. And given that statement right there, you then did decide to leave and form your own company. Uh, you co-founded something called Cardiac Technologies in 2006, and this went on for some 11 years. You were the CEO there. Uh, two questions related to that. Um, one, in the middle of that, you seem to go back to school and get a master's degree in international human rights law. Uh, so I'm curious about that. And then second, I would like to talk about uh, the technologies of iCardiac and if you could give me a highlight of uh, your, your work there, a milestone perhaps. Sure, absolutely. So iCardiac, like ClarioVision, uh, came out of the University of Rochester. Uh, and that particular company came out of the medical center and their cardiovascular research uh, division. And the way that that really got started is I'd had uh, friends who were also doing kind of some, some things in the entrepreneurial world, including one who was, had been my, one of my best friends since childhood. Uh, and uh, both of those co-founders of mine at iCardiac, they had had uh, experience in, in the clinical trial space and kind of more generally in the healthcare uh, space. So even though that had not been my background, I think we all kind of figured that you know, since two out of the three of the, the co-founders were came clearly from that world, that that probably would be uh, kind of good enough as a starting point. Uh, but in terms of what the company did, uh, iCardiac, uh, we developed technologies that enabled pharmaceutical and biotech companies to better test whether or not their drugs were going to cause a potentially lethal cardiac side effect. Yeah. And uh, we ended up working with the majority of big pharma and, and, and smaller biotech companies uh, throughout those years. Uh, and uh, it was uh, quite, quite a success, both from, uh, in terms of uh, commercially, as well as the technologies that we were able to introduce uh, into the clinical trials uh, world. Sounds like a good networking opportunity. You're meeting a lot of different stakeholders. It was a great opportunity. Uh, I mean, on many levels. Uh, we, when we started that company, we uh, all three of the co-founders had had kind of successes in different areas. We had uh, people who wanted to invest. We had some relationships with uh, other technology invest investors and, and venture capitalists. Uh, and then we also had, uh, and this came more from my co-founders, had some relationships in big pharma that allowed us to, to really test our technology, get through the validation phase, uh, because as, as most of uh, these sorts of efforts are, I mean, they are particularly kind of science and, and, and uh, validation heavy uh, on the, you know, during the first several years. Uh, as I noted, you also continued your, your legal training while doing this. Uh, why? What else were you looking to do? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. Some people might look at that and think that I had ADD or something, which which probably <laughs> the most unusual thing for, for people who are entrepreneurs. But uh, I mean, that was really, I, I can't say that there was really necessarily a professional motivation. I had been born uh, in the former Soviet Union and came over as a child and, uh, meant, and as a political refugee with, with my family. And uh, so on a personal level for me to understand better uh, especially various political rights, uh, that aspect of human rights uh, was 
personally very interesting to me. Uh, I've have found in my life that every time I've really immersed myself into studying something new, especially things that are not necessarily part of my daily world, uh, that it's always been uh, highly enriching and that I've always found ways to utilize that knowledge uh, in one way or another uh, in, and, and that they, it kind of, that all, all the things I've ever done in, in many ways end up blending together uh, mm. times in unusual ways. Excellent. And now um, you left, so iCardiac in 2017 was acquired, yes? Yeah, there were actually two acquisitions there. So initially in 2014, the company, the majority of the company was uh, acquired by Norwest Venture Partners, which is a PE firm out of Palo Alto. Uh, and uh, together we, we ran it and really grew it for another three years uh, and expanded into multiple other aspects of clinical trial uh, technologies and, uh, and, and clinical trial services. And then we sold it again uh, to what was uh, then our largest competitor, a company called ERT. Okay. And you stayed on with them for about another year. I did stay on with ERT, yes. So for a while, I was head of uh, cardiac safety services uh, globally, uh, and that was an interesting experience, but kind of similar to what I found uh, earlier in my career. Ultimately, the best fit for me was uh, a little bit earlier on in a, in a smaller company where, uh, where, where a different kind of progress can be made. And now bringing us up to the present, in 2019, you became the CEO for Clario. Now, uh, looking at your resume to date, uh, one does not immediately assume, oh, this guy should run an ophthalmology company. Uh, so why are you running an ophthalmology company? Well, I mean, I think a number of reasons. I mean, one, there was this unique opportunity. I can't say that uh, if, if that ophthalmology is the only uh, area I would have gone into, uh, you know, quite, quite obviously. Uh, there was a real um, unusual circumstance to, to how this company started. So much of the research uh, behind ClearVision had started back in 2003, and it was sponsored uh, by Bausch & Long. Uh, they basically uh, were working to figure out how do you take uh, femtosecond lasers and how do you use them to be able to better uh, manufacture uh, contact lenses. Uh, that, that program went on for a while and was really quite important to Bausch & Long. But then in a stroke of um, unusual uh, luck or, or happenstance, uh, Bausch & Lomb was acquired by Valiant. And Valiant, as some people who are listening to this may know, that they had a unique uh, philosophy with regard to research and development. Uh, they, they basically were, had a belief that when you acquire a company, you kind of cut R&D, you'll be more profitable, then you go on and, and, and get the next company. Uh, and so when that happened with regard to Bausch & Lomb, suddenly this program that had been uh, in development for nine to 10 years at that point, uh, they were looking to find a way to give it back to the University of Rochester. Uh, and so they approached them and the uh, University of Rochester looked. And at that point, there were about 40 different patents in different stages of, uh, of, of being filed or, or, or issued. Uh, the person who happened to be in charge of the tech transfer office at the University of Rochester had worked in the LASIK space before and so was very familiar uh, with, with the application uh, and, and potential uh, of this technology. And so we were kind of in the right place at the right time based on the success we'd had at iCardiac, having taken another, uh, another technology out of the University of Rochester and managing to uh, make it successful. And we were 
uh, one of the one of the groups that they reached out to that that uh, and of course we saw the potential we're very excited by it and uh, and of course we understand the need I mean that's the part that probably excites me it's not so much ophthalmology it's is there a real need there that our efforts can help to address I definitely want to talk about that uh, like uh, you know the problems you're looking to solve with this technology but, but first uh, just a bit of color on the space itself I used to cover ophthalmology back in the day, like when the, the launch of Zalatan for glaucoma. And uh, I stopped covering ophthalmology because there stopped being anything to talk about. It was either eye drops or machines. And everyone had a laser and everyone's going to do something special with their laser, but you had to buy their laser. And really there was nothing going on. Um, tell me now, and hopefully at a fairly high altitude, why this technology is ready and will change the space. Sure, and, and I think the observation you're making, you, you, you weren't the only one, I think, that, that noticed that uh, the amount of innovation, uh, certainly in some aspects of ophthalmology, uh, was not uh, as, as great as some people might, might hope. Uh, in terms of what makes this really different, uh, I mean, it's almost easier to discuss it kind of across the, the, the two uh, areas we're trying to address. Uh, essentially, for both contact lenses and for LASIK, refractive surgery, there are uh, kind of some known limitations. And both of those known limitations are addressed by the ability to write an optic either directly inside, in the middle of a contact lens or in the, or in the case of uh, refractive surgery, directly inside the corneal tissue itself. And that's really what makes this different. A femtosecond laser, and we don't use a traditional femtosecond laser, but let's call it a femtosecond uh, laser variation. Uh, what makes it different from a typical laser is that it's very fast and very low power. So you're able to almost etch, if you will, uh, a particular optic inside the corneal tissue or inside any sort of water-based uh, uh, material such as a hydrogel uh, contact lens. Okay. Now I'm going to walk through the, the three markets that you represent, that you're looking to, to make your mark. And um, we're just going to start with contacts. Uh, in general, the problem you're trying to fix here. I mean, people are wearing contacts. Do you wear contacts? I sometimes do, but because I'm now above the age of 45, I have the same issue that so many others have with contacts. So there are people who will start wearing contacts maybe in their teenage years or in their 20s and they're happy with it and their customers, you know, basically every day for years or decades. Mm. And suddenly once they start hitting somewhere into their 40s uh, and, you know, they begin to get this condition called presbyopia, uh, which is why, why people need reading glasses, right? Because they oh, yeah. no longer accommodate the same way. And so when you bring up something close, uh, their eyes kind of can't, can't accommodate anymore. And there, there are, of course, some very well-known solutions to that. I mean, like reading glasses, like progressive uh, uh, spectacles. And there is a solution also for that within the contact lens space. They're called multifocal contact lenses, but mm -hmm. are known to be not a great product. And therefore, you have this multi-multi-billion dollar, about a $12 billion industry in contact lenses globally that, that, that basically falls off to becoming a $1 billion market once you start going into that 45 or, or, or 50 year old uh, group of people. Now, multifocal contact lenses, uh, I mean, obviously they are a market, uh, but a lot of people have a tough time adjusting to them. And most importantly, 
they have a known limitation, which is that you have some compromise between do you have really good distance vision or do you have really good near vision, but you can't really have both. And the reason for that, uh, comp that, that unfortunate compromise is because of the nature of the optic that you can put into or on a contact lens right now. And so our real big problem that we're solving, or at least this is the first big problem we're solving, there's some others that we can do as well, that we're going to be doing as well later. Uh, but, the, but the problem we're, we're, that we're solving is creating a multifocal contact lens that, that absolutely minimizes and largely takes away that sort of compromise between good distance vision and good near vision. And the reason we can do it is because unlike, um, is because the kind of optic that it takes to take that away it can't be put on the front of a contact lens or the back of a contact lens. You have to be able to put it right into the middle of a contact lens uh, because it comes with these jagged edges, if you will. And because we have this technology that's able to write in the middle of a contact lens and to do that quickly, precisely, consistently, we're able to solve this big problem uh, that is uh, that is really kind of the current bane of existence, uh, if you will, in the multifocal contact lens market. Okay, before I go on to the next one, I just need to point out that uh, this is obviously a remote Zoom because no one can talk to in, in person anymore. Uh, my wife is sitting on the couch. She is nodding her head upside down. She wants me to take her credit card so she can buy these contact lenses because the problem you described is exactly the problem she's having. So yes, there's a very solid market here. I, I was wondering why you were kind of smiling as I was giving that answer. Yeah, so. yeah she's looking at me like, yay! So, <laughs> so all right, guys, so uh, refractive surgery, the next application. Again, um, what's, the, what's the main problem we're looking to solve with your, your technology? Sure, so the main kind of refractive surgery, as I think most people know, is LASIK surgery. And LASIK surgery is a pretty safe procedure. Um, but it's never really had the sort of market penetration that most people thought. And there are a few reasons for it. I mean, for those who, especially these days, who look into getting refractive surgery, they'll go on Google or YouTube and they'll start kind of trying to understand what this is about. And they'll see that it's actually a pretty invasive procedure, at least from the uh, kind of their standpoint, because you have to cut into the corneal tissue, create this corneal flap, you then basically use a second laser to uh, remove tissue, to kind of blast out tissue uh, in order to reshape the cornea and therefore to be able to change uh, the refractive index of, of, of an individual. Now, again, it's a pretty safe procedure, but sometimes there are side effects. Uh, and a lot of those side effects have to do with the wound healing effect after uh, you have kind of this, this, this corneal tissue removed. Uh, and, and again, it's not that, there, that there's a large percentage of side effects, but the side effects that people do have, which is uh, induced dry eye, uh, halos and glare, uh, I mean, th those issues tend to all come from the somewhat invasive nature of, of LASIK. Uh, the other big problem with LASIK uh, is that you really can only do it once. So most people have heard or met people who have, for instance, too thin of a cornea, in order to have the procedure. For instance, for me, uh, I have too thin of a cornea to have the procedure. Uh, but even if you have that procedure, uh, th the problem is that your eyes do tend to change, right? Because over time, just like people need different prescriptions, five, 10, 15 years later, your eyes will change. And even if you're really lucky and, you're, and your eyesight is very stable, at some point you'll hit that mid 40s or you know, late 40s mark and you're gonna get presbyopia. 
And now again, you will need to have reading glasses or something to take care of, uh, the, the, and therefore you won't be able to be spectacle free. So we actually solve all that because our procedure is truly non-invasive. We're not cutting open any flap uh, and we're not blasting out any tissue. Again, we are using the, the water content inside the cornea and on a micron by micron basis, we're essentially writing an optic right into your eye. And again, because we're not removing any corneal tissue, nobody's the cornea is too thin for it. But even more importantly, if you've had this procedure and, and, and each procedure, obviously, that the traditional LASIK thins out the cornea, well, ours doesn't. And so if your eyes, if you have this procedure through us, through this procedure called Lyric, uh, if 10 years later your eyes change or when you get presbyopia, you can just have a second corrector, basically a touch-up procedure. So now we're really changing LASIK from essentially a one-time procedure that eventually, where eventually you're still going to end up needing either glasses or, or reading glasses on some level to something that's more of a lifetime of care where you can start and have, you know, kind of your original procedure earlier on. And as your needs uh, evolve over time, you can continue to have it. So that's really the big thing. And of course, with, but because it's non-invasive, uh, these, these uh, not common, but still sometimes, you know, occurring side effects like dry eye, halos, glare, they don't happen because there is no wound healing effect. There's no wound. Where are we in the development of this product? Well, with regards to the corneal product, uh, we had our first in human studies at the end of 2018. Uh, and we've had followed that data for a year, obviously, as, as, as you and listeners know, uh, first in human studies are more about safety. And so our safety studies were, were a full success. Uh, we are now uh, preparing for our, our next uh, study, which is really the stability study. Now, we uh, have years and years of data, of course, preclinically, including uh, with, with ophthalmology, as you might know, uh, cats are a particularly good model. And so we followed those out for 27 months. And uh, so we have a lot of kind of preclinical data uh, on stability, but now our kind of the next big milestone is, is that next study, uh, which uh, sh we believe will start in, in early 2021 uh, at this point, uh, probably January, February. Uh, and, that, and that is gonna be our, our uh, stability study. And after that, we'd be ready to start uh, to start planning and going into our, uh, our regulatory studies. I'm not familiar with this space and, and clinical trial timelines and so on. When would you expect a readout of such a study? Well, for the stability study, I mean, those are also followed uh, for 12 months. Although usually you start getting some, uh, I mean, the three and six month data, I mean, directionally is, 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 you know, you can more or less start, you know, celebrating after three or six months, but, but 12 months is the official time frame. Okay. Now, whenever I talk to anybody about a new uh, device, um, there's the issue of adoption. So uh, two questions there. Uh, number one, let's assume you have the device in hand today. Do you have to have a team of trainers to go out to uh, the providers of this, of this service to train them on the device? And if so, how do you anticipate that going? How long would it take? And also a pushback, sometimes I hear about this with new technologies that maybe people with Lasix machines won't wanna use yours because they haven't finished paying for their last one. Sure. No, those are, those are good questions. So, well, let me take actually the first one uh, or the last one first. So 
as those who may have listened to commercials on the radio or looked in newspaper ads, I mean, you see that, that quite often uh, refractive surgeons, LASIK surgeons are really trying to compete on two, uh, on two, er in two areas. One is their individual experience. Second is whatever kind of the safety parameters of their uh, machine are. And, and so oftentimes they're looking for ways to differentiate and to be able to reassure people uh, and, and, and people in this industry know that the biggest uh, concern, the, the thing that basically prevents people from being converted uh, and therefore deciding to actually get LASIK surgery is the sense of fear, kind of, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be invasive. My, you know, here's a picture of what it looks like when a corneal flap is, is occurring. Uh, so the ability to get around uh, and address that concern, uh, I mean, the, I mean we, we, we certainly believe will be extremely, an extremely important factor in adoption. Uh, but we've also have a very strong uh, group of, of KOLs, uh, people who will be able to go on, on the podium and talk about their experience uh, with this device. Uh, and, and of course, uh, that also should uh, relieve, I think, the, the concerns of, uh, of a lot of uh, uh, practicing refractive surgeons that, 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 that there's anything to you know, be, be concerned about. I mean, in terms of training um, more, more broadly, uh, so the process here will actually be easier than a traditional than doing a traditional LASIK surgery, because uh, a big part of what can go wrong with LASIK surgery is the is the cutting of the flap. I mean, here the process of actually doing this procedure is quite is quite straightforward, uh, and so yes, of course, there's going to be some some training, uh, and we'll be doing what kind of what 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 most do in these scenarios. We'll be going around kind of city to city and region to region and, and sending our uh, KOLs and, and, and uh, employees to teach, uh, to, to, to teach uh, surgeons how to do it. But we certainly don't anticipate that there would be uh, any sort of hiccup relative to the difficulty of, of, of knowing how to do it. This will actually be probably the easiest training historically that, that they would have had in this area. Excellent. And finally, intraocular lenses. Uh, I know this partly refers to cataract surgery God knows the market must be massive. Uh, again, uh, what are you trying to solve here? Sure. So the a very common uh, after effect of IOL surgery is that the IOL itself kind of shifts and settles, uh, and the result of that uh, that, that movement uh, is that there's something called a residual refractive error. Basically, people were were provided an IOL through which theoretically they should have seen fine could be spectacle independent, but because of that shift of the IOL, uh, now they basically need uh, some sort of correction to be able to see properly. Uh, the IOL program that we have uh, is a post-surgery IOL touch-up. In other words, we write in the IOL, once it's already been implanted and once we already know what, that what the nature of that residual refractive error is. So it's, it's kind of a, a secondary procedure uh, to make sure that the IOL patients are, or, or that cataract patients are happy with their, with their site. Okay. Um, and again, uh, where are we on the development of this? Uh, so this one, uh, we actually have a partner uh, for that one. Uh, one of the kind of, you know, significant companies in this space. Uh, we have gone through uh, kind of one major phase uh, of, of this, uh, of that particular program. Uh, we've just kicked off uh, kind of the next phase of it. Uh, so we're still, I mean, we believe for that one, that's probably the furthest out in some ways, or, or could be the furthest out. I mean, that one in terms of reaching the markets, probably in that three 
plus year range, uh, unlike the other two, where with contact lenses, we, we will be in the market in 2021. Uh, and with the refractive surgery, uh, I mean, we will, of course, be having our stability study next year. And in 2022, kind of 2023, that's when we anticipate the, uh, the, the, the regulatory and approval studies to take place. All right, for the contact lenses, you're gonna to have to send me a brochure now because I'm getting. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna look, look, look from the couch here. Um, <laughs> so, um, where's the IP for all of this, Rochester? It's, yes. So, uh, the University of Rochester, as I mentioned, started off with about 40 patents in, in different stages. Uh, all of those were exclusively licensed uh, to to us, to Clario. Uh, we have, uh, of course, been hiring. We're up to about 80 uh, employees at this point. We've, including many uh, people on the on the on the science science, uh, science and engineering uh, sides of our of our business. And so we've continued to both create IP jointly, uh, in some cases jointly with U of R, and in some cases uh, it's it's kind of the, that next set of uh, implementation uh, patents and IP that we've been developing uh, uh, ourselves as Clario Vision. So we're now up to about 70 patents uh, in, in different uh, stages of, uh, of application and prosecution. Okay, just a couple more questions. Um, you have a, an unusual aspect to, your sci to a company that's science-based is you have a revenue stream, uh, which we don't normally have to talk yes. about. What is Extreme H2O? Sure, so Extreme H2O, uh, that's, it's the brand name uh, of a company called Hydrogel uh, Vision Corporation. So that was another uh, kind of very nice happenstance for us. So we started looking about a year and a half ago for what would be kind of the perfect partner in terms of uh, the material, that the, the contact lens material that would work well with our process. In other words, being able to write into the middle of it. And so we identified uh, this, this company, uh, Hydrogel Vision Corporation. And as we decided that we absolutely you know, had found the perfect partner, we also found out that they were in the and had started a uh, process of being sold uh, to somebody. I mean, it was still it was still an open process. So we jumped in with uh, both feet uh, and moved as quickly as we could uh, and managed to acquire uh, this company. Now, in reality, it wasn't. I mean, certainly it was. It's great now that we uh, are, are now have the ability to kind of control what what happens with this uh, material, since that is really important to our product. But the other things that the other benefits that came with that is, first of all, we have manufacturing uh, infrastructure. Now, right now, that's manufacturing infrastructures is focused on those legacy products that they've been selling for many years. And it's, it's a wonderful product, especially for people who ha uh, have a tough time wearing contact lenses for a long time because their eyes become dry. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the future, this will also be the infrastructure for being able to uh, mass produce our multifocal contact lens. And of course, they also have thousands of optometry customers around the country, uh, and they have all of the other kind of infrastructure uh, that, that you need in order to be able to put out a, an FDA-approved uh, contact lens. So we, uh, we have been uh, absolutely thrilled uh, that, that we were lucky enough to partner with them and to acquire them, and it's uh, it's been a it's been a great year. It's, it actually just closed a year and, and a month ago, so we just celebrated this. Well, it sounds like a fantastic fit. Um, and finally, let's just talk uh, very briefly about money and what's going to happen on August tenth. Uh, what sort of cash are you sitting on for your runway, and what sort of conversations are you looking to have on the tenth with ophthalmology investors? Yes, I mean we were uh, we were 
quite happy, especially in retrospect, that we did a, uh, another round in the middle of last year. Uh, and so we continue at right now to have about $17 million on our, on our balance sheet because you know, we were lucky enough to have good timing uh, pre-COVID. Uh, yeah. And so that really gets us uh, well into 2021, uh, somewhere in, in the third quarter of 2021. Uh, we are looking to do another round now uh, and, and part of that is because we, uh, when we look at um, the, our, our two kind of big and, and, the, and that third market with IOLs, and what are the key milestones that we want to be able to, that we know we're going to be able to achieve, and how do we also uh, do a uh, kind of a good job of, of doing the rollout on, on our clinical trials product next year? Uh, this this round, uh, one more round. Uh, uh, is, is kind of where, where we and the board ca came out on in terms of what would be helpful for us. Uh, and so we are, that round would get us through uh, some, sometime into the first two quarters of 2022 uh, and enable us to be able to uh, kind of achieve all the things we're, we're working on right now. So uh, in terms of what we're looking for, I mean, we're really looking for uh, companies and investors that uh, share the excitement about what we're doing. Uh, have a similar vision to what it is that we're uh, looking to do and people that we think we can work with well. Uh, in many ways, we're kind of starting this a little, certainly earlier than, than most because we do have a lot of cash left on the balance sheet. But for us, we would rather start earlier, pick the, pick the best partners uh, and, uh, and go from there. Splendid. Alex, thank you so much. For our listeners, I've been speaking with Alexander Zepazochny. He is the CEO of Clario Vision. He will be presenting his company's technology August 10th on the show, private company showcase for Solberry Trout. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure.